music can only mean one thing. Right, Kevin Barker? What's that, buddy? It is time for Blair and Barker, the podcast. And you know, Kevin, uh, pitchers and catchers are supposed to be in spring training facilities in Florida and Arizona by now. And uh, shout out, by the way, to uh, Tim Leeper for sending me a photo of the spring training complex in Arizona. Huh. The sunshine, cactus, desert. Yeah. Empty fields. Uh, anyhow, pitchers and catchers are supposed to be in spring training facilities in Florida and Arizona by now. But uh, they've been locked out since early in November. And, uh, well, as we await another counterproposal from the Major League Baseball Players Association, which is scheduled to come down on Thursday, uh, there is a real sense, I think, that even those of us who were optimists a couple of months ago I think there's a real sense that even we think that opening day is in jeopardy. Kevin Barker, I'm going to ask you as we sit here on this day, the commissioner has essentially said it's going to take 28 days for spring training, get a deal done by the end of February, and uh, the season should be able to start up in time. I'm going to ask you as we sit here today, and you are, are you at all surprised we are where we are? And do you see any grounds for optimism? Uh, I'm not. Uh, there, there, is, there was a big uh, no trust between Rod Manfred and the players. We all know that. Uh, they just really were far apart on issues that mattered a lot, like service time, luxury tax, minimum wage, tanking. And from where I'm sitting right now, the, the, everything that I've read, everything that I'm seeing, everybody I've talked to, players are wanting a big win. And right now, owners are wanting to give away small wins. And until somebody gives a little and wants to halfway that, whatever, whoever side that is, you know, is this, look, for me anyway, I'm not in the room. I will say this. If this thing goes past March 1st, they will be the laughing stock of sports. Period. End of story. It's pretty hard to argue with that. Um, I, I will be immensely disappointed if that's the case. As I said, I, I had no, uh, I had no doubt about the seriousness of this negotiation. There's an awful lot of complicated things being talked about, but the fact of the matter is, I really did think that we would that that we would be closing in by now on an agreement. Eventually, spring training will start. You know, eventually, we will have spring training in some description. Uh, one of the first things I learned in trying to make sense of everything going on at spring training as a young reporter, because you go out there and there's you know, 30 million different fields and 30 million different players and guys are going from one end to the other. The first thing I learned was that if you really wanted to know what the day's most important story was, well, you found out where the manager was going to be. And you followed him around, as my friend Michael Farber said. Chances are, if the manager feels he needs to see something or somebody, well, it's probably important enough for you to be there, too. So that was a great lesson, lesson number one. The second lesson was if you really wanted to see how much work gets done in spring training, follow a catcher for a day. It is exhausting, and until you've done that, I don't think you really understand what a grind that job can be. Now, we're lucky today on Blair and Barker, the podcast, because while Toronto Blue Jays catcher Danny Jansen can't report to Nadine, he has reported to our 
podcast. Danny, thank you so much for joining us as always. We know you're in the Clearwater area with a bunch of your teammates. Has the mood between the players or amongst the players changed in the last week or so? Uh, you know what? Like, obviously, it's getting closer. Uh, what yesterday would have been our first day, so you know that's that's new to everybody, you know. And and um, so I think that you know we're all just you know speaking on my behalf. I'm I'm just trying to stay locked in and, and uh, do what I need to do to keep my body in shape and and you know not not burn myself out uh, as far as you know all the you know bullpens and like the hitting and all that stuff. Just kind of you know having a nice dose of um, you know getting after it, but also kind of hitting the brakes a little bit, and then that's kind of where I've been at. Danny, anything that you've heard or, or been told that gives you hope that this could come to an end anytime soon? Um, yeah, I mean, we get trickled down information and stuff, and, and uh, you know, uh, the ball's rolling. So that's, you know, that's obviously what we want. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I'm basing it off there. So the, ball, the ball's moving. Yeah, th- this is your first experience, obviously, uh, with a lockout. What's been the most difficult thing about it? Uh, anything surprised you? It's it's just the you know the the unknown you know what I mean that's that's kind of what what uh, you know obviously everybody's going through it and everybody's everybody's new to it and it's just you know it's a it's an interesting time but I think it's just the unknown and the uncertainty but um so so yeah that's pretty much what what I've been thinking. Uh, Danny, this will be the second time in three years that spring training hasn't been done as usual. Did you learn anything from the COVID interrupted spring training that you can apply to the uncertainty surrounding this spring? Yeah, absolutely. That was that was another thing, right? It was the unknown. We had no idea what what was going to be going on when when we were going to be playing. So, um, yeah, I, I've definitely learned my lesson um, from that. You know, with with still, you know, I think you know, not burning yourself out is a big one because you know, in that COVID, um, all the time that we had in between, you know, when it shut down and when we started back up again, there was a couple months and all, and and the fact that we didn't know anything about it really, I mean, uh, you kind of learned like how to how to do workouts and stuff, but also stay, stay ready. But, but I think not burning yourself out is a big one. I think that that, that can easily be done with, with, you know, just like, you know, crushing machine day in and day out and all that stuff and really ramping up. I think that, um, you know, especially for me, it's just big to kind of take it easy, still get my work in and do stuff. But, but, uh, you know, I don't have to, um, you know, show up to spring and be ready for, you know, the first game yet. You know what I mean? You still got a little bit of time. So, um, just figuring out how to not not to burn yourself out, I think, is important. So, and I, and I learned that in the COVID year. Yeah, I was because I guess the positive here is that unlike that year, you won't be ramping up, shutting down, then ramping up again, right? You'll be ramping up as soon as this is done. Yeah, ramping up and then it's go time. So, yeah, exactly. It's not you know, it's not, uh, you know, spring training and then shutting down and having no idea what, what's going to happen. That was a wild time for sure. How, how do you feel about the way you're swinging the bat in your workouts? It's been good, man. I, I uh, honestly, you know, uh, how I finished last year, um, you know, not only like, you know, mechanically with my swing, but, but more so like my mentality and stuff is really what I've been trying to bulletproof this off season. And, and, uh, you know, working with Dante, we're working on, we're working on the swing and all, but we're also trying to, you know, really master the mind management. And I think I took a, a big step towards that um, last off season, kind of figuring out like, who, who am I, you know, who really am I? And, and uh, so now I'm just trying to, you know, solidify that in my brain and just keep going and, and uh, trying to, you know, hit the ground running. Danny, do you get to do this on the field? 
uh, like do work and stuff right now? Yeah, like like take batting practice instead of doing it all in the cage. Right when when, when I tried to play, you know, it's just beginning to see my actual work, doing it on right. the field, seeing which way the ball goes, seeing the backspin of the baseball. Are you getting to do that on the field? I have not. I have not done that. I uh, I think you know, especially you know, growing up in the north and stuff, always being in the, inside right around springtime. I don't know. It's just, you know, that's something I've always done. But being in Florida, definitely opportunities to do that. I haven't taken advantage of that yet. But um, it is nice. I agree with you. It is nice to see ball flight and do all these things. And uh, But also, you know, you kind of keep it – you can look at it two ways. You know, I think, you know, for me personally, you know, you get out on the field and, and maybe I'm trying to do too much instead of just kind of keep it simple and, and keep my stroke uh, – you know, keep it keep it small and keep it tight, and um, so that's another that's a positive of being in the cage all the time. You know, I think it was last year or maybe the year before you mentioned that one of your points of emphasis in off season training was was flexibility, given the grind yeah. of catching 162 behind the plate, leaving aside throwing and hitting and things of that nature. Uh, what have you learned over the years about that? About keeping your body in good enough shape that you can handle the the workload of the everyday catcher yeah it's something that i've learned for sure it's something that i'm continuing to learn you know like just about my body in general and about how everything kind of works in you know in a chain and uh so last year especially after my first hamstring injury i started to really you know hone in and do a better job of um of doing more more soft tissue work and stuff on my own. I mean, I've always done it, but like different parts of my body to kind of, you know, because I'm realizing that things are all working in a chain, and they, you know, and so um, definitely that. I think that having the two injuries last year, um, you know, and, and watching like Marcus Simeon, you know, I always I always throw Marcus Simeon for an example for a lot of things, but that guy was in there before and after the game doing the same stuff, so so he can be ready to play. And uh, obviously, you know, you're never going to be 100 percent all the time, but the more you can do, you know, with the training staff, but also on your own and, uh, you know, the different things that, that you can do. There's all sorts of, you know, breathing exercises and all these things to reset your pelvis is big for me. And all these things I'm really starting to learn and I'm really starting to tap into that. And that's, that's, that's you know, crucial stuff. So, What in particular was Marcus's secret to, to playing all those games? Well, I mean, the guy's a bulldog for one, you know, and also I think, you know, like I said, he, he would do the same thing. He would be in our, um, in the, in the weight room after games, you know, no matter the outcome. And he's doing, uh, a lot of stuff to reset the pelvis. Pelvis is a huge thing. I know he's doing that a lot and a lot of breathing stuff. Um, a lot of things just to wind down from the game and, uh, really, you know, takes advantage of being in the training room and, and, and being in the weight room after just to keep his body as loose as he can, because he's going to be in the lineup every day. You know what I mean? So, so all that stuff, you know, it's 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 uh, it's crucial things to take care of your body. Also, eating right and all these things and stuff that, that I've definitely learned on the way. The last time we talked to you, you you had mentioned that you couldn't wait to catch Kevin Gossman. First question I have: Has have you gotten a chance to do that? And if not, you I had also talked about you know you wanted to get a, a, in front of a machine that could throw you split fingers right. so you could learn how to, to block balls, which way it was going to move, what certain places it would hit the ground. How's that going? It's good. I have not had a chance to uh, catch him. Um, you know, we, we've been talking to each other a little bit here and there and all that stuff. And, and uh, you know, the, the, you know, the one thing with the lockout is like the video and stuff we really don't have. Um, 
So I've done my done my homework before the lockout and all, and and uh, I've got in front of machine catching and doing a little bit of blocking on it too. And uh, you know, I'm looking forward to when spring training happens and really hitting the ground running with him, but also you know, um, getting it going more with the blocking off you know the splitter because it's in my opinion it's probably one of the harder harder pitches to block. So uh, I'm just gonna do what I can to prepare myself, which I will. Okay, for some people that never caught before, what's the hardest thing about catching a split finger and also blocking a split finger? Yeah, I mean, you guys know. You, you see these things on TV and all, like the split finger is, is you know, there's split, – splitters are different, but, you know, majority of the ones, you know, they're they're hard. They're kind of, you know, they can be unpredictable. With, sometimes they'll cut. Sometimes they'll, they'll really dive and um, – and sometimes, you know, they'll stay kind of straight. But so you always got to be prepared. I always think that when I'm catching a splitter, really any any off-speed pitch for blocking for me is my first initial thought is this ball is not getting past me. I'm, pre- I'm prepared to block it before I'm prepared to catch it. You know what I mean? That's just one of the things that I tap into. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so yeah, it, it's just a pitch that's usually hard, and it's, it's going to be dropping. And sometimes it might, you know, it might cut, too. It might do some wild things. So you got to be on your toes. But, um but it's a nasty pitch, man. It's, if it's tough to catch, you know, sometimes tough to block, tough to hit. You know what I mean? Yep. The way I look at it, too. Hey, if this thing goes on a little longer, can you see maybe more guys getting together someplace in Florida? Obviously, you can't use the club facility, but there's a lot of ball fields around Florida. And can you maybe see that that, that happening, guys just kind of getting together on their own? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I really do. I think that, um, you know, was, everybody's competitors, and, and they want to, you know, they want to be prepared for – the season so you know the best way to do that pitchers got to throw to some hitters you know you know catchers got to catch some live arms you know get in the box and even if you're tracking some things or doing all sorts of stuff i mean i think that there's so many hubs in the country too like tampa is one of them there's so many ball players around here so you know if it does take you know longer than then i can see that happening last question for us danny you've been really good with your time uh commissioner rod manfred has said that their data supports the idea that you need four weeks of spring training again this goes back to uh goes back to COVID. as a hitter and as somebody who works daily with pitchers who needs four weeks more the hitters or the pitchers and if we had to could we get by with less than four weeks uh, it's, it's tough man i mean the COVID one was shorter than four weeks i believe and, and um you know it's it was you know tough to see There's a lot of injuries so you got to make sure the, the main priority is the pitcher's arms and make sure that they are they are good to go because that's 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 one of the main things with having you know, a little bit longer spring training in three weeks you know is just make sure that the pitchers um pitchers arms are in shape you know as hitters you know we can do things like machine work and all that stuff to kind of um, you know, simulate, you know, velo and all those things. Um, and obviously you need to get some at bats in the spring. That's very important. But I would say, you know, between the two, I'd say pitchers is more important for making sure their arms are in shape. Okay, last one for sure before we let you go. How's married life treating you so far? Uh, married life's good, man. We um, we did elope in uh, 2020, so we, we have been married. Um, oh. But finally, you know, we, we had the ceremony and celebrated with all our friends and family, and uh, it's good, man. Awesome. Listen, Danny, thanks so much for doing this, man. We really do appreciate your time. Stay healthy, and uh, let's hope that uh, we're seeing each other soon in Dunedin. Thanks, as always, my friend. Be well. Thanks, Danny. Absolutely, guys. Take care. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that's a different Danny. That's a smarter Danny for me. You, you listen to him talk, just how he's working out, uh, how he's taking care of his body. Uh, he resets his pelvis. That's news to me. When I was playing in, in 1996 to, to 2000, whatever it was I played, I never tried to reset my pelvis. Who he's talking to. There's such yeah. a good joke there. I'm just not going to go there, You know well, that. You know, but I, I kind of did, I, didn't I? I did. I set him up for you very well there. Just who he's talking to about his game. The sense of urgency for me, for Danny, is there now. You know, he got his mm -hmm. mulligan. He got his chance to hit, what was it, a buck 83 in somewhat over 43 games. It's awful. It's terrible. For me, he's got to get off to a hot start. He either wants to play five days a week or two days a week. And I think just listening to him talk there, you can you can hear it in his voice that he's ironed out the little things he needs to do. He's very specific in each part of his workouts. And he's getting ready to roll and get off to a hot start. Well, you probably know that uh, I was one of those people who believed players and owners would get a deal done without sacrificing any real games. I've said all along, I frankly don't care whether or not spring training Days get lost. I don't care if Grapefruit or Cactus League games get lost. And, and there's still a chance, I guess, if, if something happens by the end of next week. But our next guest never shared that optimism. In fact, right from the get-go, former MLBPA Communications Director Greg Boris said he believed regular season games would be lost. This is as far back, folks, as November and December. He was saying he thought games would be lost. So... Does he feel any differently now, or is he even more certain? Greg Boris will take us inside the bargaining room next. It's Blair. It's Barker. It's our podcast. Back in a bit. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your favorite pods. We do this midweek from 7 to 8 Eastern Time on Sportsnet 590. The fan will be back on the air in a regular time slot sometime soon. Well, Kevin Barker, I don't know if I'd say that Danny Jansen sounded optimistic about a deal getting done between owners and players, but uh, he did say... I thought this was kind of interesting a couple of minutes ago. He did tell us that he thought, and these are his words, he thought that the ball was rolling. And I guess my only hope is that if it is rolling, it stays fair and, <laughs> and it doesn't roll foul. So what do we make of where negotiations stand right now, negotiations between the owners and players? Greg Boris has firsthand knowledge of how these things work. He's president of PowerX Communications formerly communications director for the Major League Baseball Players Association, and he's here with Jeff Blair and Kevin Barker. So, Greg, you've been skeptical all along. I remember you telling us right from the get-go that you thought some regular season games would be missed as a result of this lockout. Please tell us you've changed your mind. <laughs> well, let me ask you, what what has transpired since our conversation in December that would make you think that I would change my mind. Not a thing. <laughs> right. Right. It, and, and I haven't. Um, and we haven't seen a lot of progress. Doesn't mean that things can't pick up. Again, and I'm sure I mentioned this in December, we really won't know what's happening unless you're in the room. 
uh, right, three sides to every story. But at this pace and at this rate, it seems like, and I'm only going off of published reports, that the sides are pretty, still pretty far apart on some of the major core economic issues. And as you know, these are complicated issues that are not negotiated in a vacuum, right? One is connected to the other. Uh, so it's a very difficult give and take. And right now, because there have been no real pressure points, uh, neither side is willing to give as much as they want to take. And it's going to be a while. Yeah, that's interesting. You said been a while. You know, the the owners made their proposal on the 12th. It sounds like the players are coming back tomorrow. That's a solid four days. Is that slow? Is that quick in your mind? What does that tell us? It tells me they're still not close to a deal. Uh, from my past experiences, and again, each negotiation has a life of its own. Uh, so it's really not from one round of negotiation to the next can you really compare them? They have their own rhythm uh, to them. And, and again, we're still in kind of this distanced world where we're not all in the same cities and locations and things. So that might put a little bit of a crimp in it. But from my past experiences, having gone through negotiations, you know, two rounds when I worked on the team side in hockey and then four rounds on the union side in baseball, when you get close to a deal, the the negotiations, the meetings, they happen pretty quickly, uh, a lot of turnaround. And clearly, as you get closer, they accelerate uh, to the point where when you're at the uh, at the end of a deal, you're working almost around the clock, right around the clock. Greg, uh, what to your, to, to your mind would represent a win for the players? I, I know that we're all guilty of looking at these things and, you know, and wins and losses and sort of who took who to the woodshed in negotiations. But... Uh, you know, it looks like an earlier entry to free agency is off the table. Revenue sharing seems to be uh, a non-starter. Ownership has moved a bit in terms of pay for pre-arb players. I, I don't know if that's enough to move talks along. What do you see here as being a core issue that Tony Clark, Bruce Meyer, and the executive committee can work towards and take to you know take to the players as a group and say, guys, this is this is this is a significant gain for us. Well, again, because they're all connected, it's not as easy as saying this column's black, that column's white. Let's get this one. Let's get that one. There's a lot of gray, right, to get to where you want to be. I think philosophically, I think what the players might be looking for here is a deal that better reflects the uh, kind of the way the game is monitored now from a player acquisition perspective, right? The current system that they're working under um, represents and was negotiated under a different philosophy in the game where they valued experience over youth. And that's why everything you see in the current CBA reflects that in terms of free agency and arbitration and the min minimum salaries with teams having all the leverage for three years and playing having, players having zero leverage. And those minimum salaries don't really reflect uh, the revenue coming into the game, nor do they reflect the star quality and how quickly players are being ushered up into the major league system. So that's one piece. I think they want I think they want the current system to better reflect the philosophy or the way the game's being run now by the front offices and that would include uh higher pay for the entry level players, much much higher pay and at the top end a competitive back uh competitive 
balanced tax threshold that better reflects the revenues coming into the game. Uh, not one as low as it is today, but one that is, you know, very representative of the revenue that's coming into the game. Greg, it almost seems as if the Players Association for the past two negotiations in particular, it almost seems as if they've been playing defense. I don't know if this is because at some point the owners stopped talking about a salary cap and figured out other ways (laughs) to depress, you know, to to basically put a salary cap in effect without without calling it a salary cap. Is that is that a fair assessment? Because that that does seem to be the working you know, the working assessment right now is that is that the Players Association are kind of, you know, they're playing defense and the owners are moving the ball down the field and it's just a matter, they want a field goal, they want a touchdown, or they want to just pin these guys back in their own their own goal line. Well, let me, let me answer it this way. I, I don't think they were necessarily playing defense, but I, and again, remember, these, these deals historically have been negotiated in lengths of five years or so. Uh, and if you look back at all the other five-year increments, not a lot changed in the game philosophically. But over the last five years, the game has changed dramatically, dramatically. So the old deal, the last deal of the the most recent deal, uh, almost by the time the ink was dry and that CBA, things started to change. So by 2000, Mm -hmm. you know, that was 2016, 2017, all of a sudden you wake up in 2018 and it's all about war, and it's all about bringing these players in at the $550,000 minimum wage and telling that middle-class guy he he's now on the street. The stars are going to get the stars' pay, uh, and they're going to bring in all this cheap labor. So what happened was, you know, no fault of anybody, but what happened because of that philosophical change, all of a sudden one class of player became more appealing than any of the other two classes of players, meaning zero to three uh, three to five, and then five, uh, the, the free agency class. And the challenge for the players in negotiations is to try and not make that happen, right? Try to keep all the classes appealing, not have one kind of cannibalize the other. And right now, uh, the the young players, they're great players. They're coming in under a system where the teams only have to pay them less than $600,000 a year. The players have no alternative but to, to take that take that money, hold out, or go somewhere else and try to find a job. Uh, Scott they, Boris... Players rep- need to spike that up. Mm, yeah. Uh, Scott Boris represents the majority of the players on the executive committee. How much influence do you think he has in these negotiations? Oh, I don't know. I can't, I can't answer that question. Um, I, again, unless you're in the room, you don't know. Will he have influence? Perhaps, of course. He's been around the game. He knows the game very well. He's been a real advocate for players. So I think anything he's going to do is going to be pro-player. Uh, and the union is always you know, open to conversations with all the player representatives and agents to get different perspectives. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's the players that are ultimately going to make the decision. And they're going to, through the guidance of you know, Bruce Meyer and his staff and the other union lawyers in the, in the player leadership, they're the ones who are going to drive uh, drive the bus during this negotiation. And again, I think it boils down to uh, just trying to get a deal that better reflects how the game is being operated today in in, in regard to how the players are coming into the system and how, how they're being compensated as it relates to the revenue that's coming into the game. We're in conversation with Greg Boris on Blair and Barker. You know, Harold Reynolds made an interesting point in the MLB Network last week. 
um, after Rob Manfred's news conference. And one of the things he said was he hoped that at some point somebody would remind the players of some of their past wins, right, as opposed to simply telling them how much they lost in the last CBA. And he, he told an interesting story about one of the negotiations in the 80s when he was a young player. I mean, he ended up losing money. Uh, because arbitration eligibility moved, uh, I believe, to two years, to three years from two years and, and had an immediate impact on him. You know, of course, as he said, look, at the time, I wasn't happy, but I mean, you know, majority rules, et cetera, et cetera, and I certainly wasn't going to complain about it. But he also said, at the time, I didn't realize that there was a real substantial improvement made in the player's pension plan. He said, well, now I'm looking back at that and going, man, if only you knew then what you, what you know now. And I wanted to ask you, when you were with the MLBPA, how difficult was it? Because these guys are all competitors. How difficult was it, though, to remind guys that sometimes the victories weren't always apparent the day the negotiation is signed? Well, I think that comes with the territory, right? Again, like I say, it's give and take. You're trying to address all class of players, and you're trying to make it better for all class of players. That includes the retired players, right? The players have always gone to bat for the former players. Uh, But the players also know that there is a give and take. You can't make everybody happy, uh, but what you want to do is make the system better uh, uh, collectively. You know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and, and the players' mantra and, and every player will tell you this, that during this negotiation, what they want to try to do is not just think for themselves, but they want to leave the game better for the next generation of player because the players that came before this generation are the ones that, that left this game in the condition that they have it. And so they want to work hard in this negotiation to try, if they feel a pivot's needed, to, to move the minimum to a much significant rate and move the competitive balance tax to a higher rate. Uh, not only is it for their benefit, but it's for the the benefit of the players to follow. Greg, from your experience, experience, how important is tomorrow for this? Every negotiating session is important. It's it's a, it's another opportunity to to move the ball forward, no matter how small that incremental progress might be or how large. Uh, but every day that the sides get together is a better day than they're apart. So. Uh, but you can't. You, there's no way to prejudge in value one over the other. Like I said, it could be slow, and then all of a sudden it could rocket. Um, but at the pace we've seen, uh, you'd assume going in, it's still going to be a bit of a, a slow, a slow burn here. Yeah, one of the things I've I've started to wonder about, and uh, this really is something I've tried to keep an eye on. But admittedly, I, I, I'm not as close to you know the ownership group as I was back when I was on the beat, and you kind of knew you kind of knew who the hawks were you knew who the doves were and you knew that if jerry reinsdorf was ever quoted in anything that it was it was basically going to go nuclear um do you think we need to spend a little more time wondering about the owners around rob manfred well, you know we we saw what happened with the rays now i understand there are a lot of reasons that the split cities concept wasn't going to come off but the fact of the matter is Stuart sternberg was the only owner to vote against ratifying the last cba we've seen the chicago cubs go against the commissioner's expressed wishes and at least start to examine establishing their own streaming service. And Greg, I mean, you know, as well as anybody, we were told back in 2020 that there were some owners that didn't necessarily want to come out of the COVID break. 
when they did. And we also know that the owners have hired a former political operative to act as their de facto PR person in negotiations. So I'm wondering if maybe, Rob, if maybe we need to step back a bit and just wonder what type of internal pressure Rob is getting. And, and I wonder when he made that comment last week about a, a, a you know, loss of regular season games that'd be disastrous for the game. I understand that that would directed the players, but I wonder if maybe it wasn't directed to some of his owners as well. Well, it's possible, but I, I think historically the players are usually going to be more unified than the owners are because the players' focus is singular, right? It's on the power the players have as a group, what they want to do for the players. It's not about any particular player or any particular class of player. So the baseball union uh, and the players historically have been very um, together. Uh, when they're in negotiations, there's not much splintering at all. On the owner's side, though, every owner comes into it looking at it, what's best for their circumstances and their situation. Uh, and they're not all created equal, as you know, and they all come at it from different perspectives. It, it's possible, and again, because we're not in a room, we don't know. Uh, but right. it's possible that there are some factions on the owner's side that maybe they would be more aligned with the players to say, yeah, we really hope the players are pushing hard for – uh, changes to the revenue sharing because we're tired of giving this level of revenue sharing to the teams who are just putting it in their pocket and not doing much. So so there's that. I, I think Rob has a harder time on his hands than Tony does on his hands to, to keeping his group together and making sure that they're all uh, negotiating from the same uh, uh, with the same intentions. How important are back channels in this thing? Do, do they exist in these negotiations? You know, maybe... Uh, a particular owner and and as you know gets along well with a particular player in the executive committee or or vice versa. I, I, I don't know if that I don't know if that existed before. I don't know if it exists now. But it's always kind of intrigued me when we get down to 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 these talks. It's possible. It's possible that there's always some of that and and likely on the owner side that say, hey, you know, if you guys are really pushing for revenue sharing, you won't get much resistance from me. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think, uh, you know, I don't think it's it's blatant, but um, it's possible. But I don't know how likely or how probable it is. It's it's, it's plausible, given the fact that, you know, some teams are going to want the status quo. And then there may be some teams who do want to see some changes. Maybe there are some teams who do think, you know, I, I want to blow past this competitive balance tax because I want to invest more in my team and stars and i know i can maximize my market better by investing more heavily in the players uh, and i'm willing to do that but i can't because i don't want to pay this tax on it just doesn't make sense does it get tougher to keep the players aligned the closer you get to we can call them pressure points i mean i don't know how much of a pressure point spring training is but the fact is pitchers and catchers would have been reporting by now grapefruit league games will be starting and a couple of days and then of course the regular season rolls around on march 28th does it get harder it, from your experience, to 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 keep control of, I say keep control of the players, but does it get harder to control the message as we get closer to these various pressure points? I think it gets harder on both sides once real economic pains are felt, and I don't think spring training, although spring training is a pretty big economic um, component for Major League Baseball, less so the players. Uh, but I do think once you get to that, though. Once one side loses something of significance, then it has the potential to 
not be positive, right? It could now irritate some owners and other people if they lose spring training. And then once players start losing paychecks in April, and if it goes into May, then some players might get a little itchy and start thinking, why are we doing this? Um, so, yeah, you want to avoid those pressure points because you could then they could result in some internal pressure on both sides uh, where it may be harder to keep your groups together. Uh, but this is a very serious matter, right? This is this is this is what it's all about for both sides. The owners have a very good deal; they want to keep it intact. The players have a deal that they don't like, and they probably know that they can't make significant changes unless they make significant sacrifices. And they can just look at history; none of the gains that the players have were ever given to them. You know, those previous generations of players they suffered through strikes and lockouts and lost millions and millions of dollars to get what they had and this group of players i'm sure being told you know if you want to get what you want to get out of this deal you have to be prepared for the worst you can't plan for the best you have to plan for the worst greg really good of you to do this today terrific insight as always my friend thanks so much thanks greg thanks for having me take care greg boris take care he's president of uh power x communications um (laughs) former communications director for the Major League Baseball Players Association. And I keep forgetting, he's also worked uh, worked for NHL. He knows his way around arenas and knows his way around the ballpark. So uh, that's where we are. As we said, the uh, players are supposedly scheduled to make a counterproposal to the owners tomorrow, I believe 1 o'clock Eastern. I believe it's in New York. I, I, I could be wrong. Um, I, I would assume that it would likely be a face-to-face meeting. Um, although, uh, you know, uh, in this day and age, who knows? But, yeah, the the last owner's proposal, there was a little bit of movement. Uh, but nothing, I, I, I don't think there was that, Kevin, that, that, that aha moment, right? That yeah. grabbed everybody's attention and said, okay, now... You know, now we're getting down to the to to the to the nut of this, and it's a great point, Greg made. You know, you think, gosh, think think the changes we've seen in the game in the last five years since that last CBA was signed. Mm-hmm. There have been a ton of change. You know, who, who would have thought that we'd be using war to determine player salaries? That people would be talking about using war. I can remember when you could get in a fist fight in the press box talking about war because the older guys thought it was like this voodoo stuff that didn't make sense, and the younger numbers guys thought it was it was like religion. And now they're yeah. looking at maybe using it as a way to determine how much how much players get paid. Yeah, listening to Greg talk just doesn't sound like until they start losing money, both sides there's not going to be urgent to get anything done. That's at least yeah. what it sounds like to me. Absolutely. As uh, Greg Boris said, pressure points uh, are important, and we thank him for joining us. Another story that uh, has grabbed the attention of the baseball world this week is the court case involving former Angels Communications Director Eric Kay, who has been indicted on drug distribution and conspiracy charges relating to the death of Tyler Skaggs, a pitcher with the Los Angeles Angels from an overdose in 2019. It is alleged that Kay provided Skaggs with counterfeit oxycodone pills laced with fentanyl and uh, that those pills uh, led to the pitcher choking on his own vomit. The trial has been going on in Fort Worth this week 
and TJ Quinn has covered it for ESPN. He joins us on Blair and Barker. TJ, thanks so much for joining us at the end of what I'm sure is a long day for you. Uh, first of all, some breaking news. Uh, you reported that uh, sources in Major League Baseball are telling you that there is a chance that Matt Harvey may end up facing suspension this season as a result of his admission as as part of this trial, and we'll get to that in a minute, as a result of his admission as part of, the, as, as part of this trial, uh, that he used cocaine. Um, anything further you can tell us about that? And I was under the impression that under this current CBA, the emphasis was less on suspending or punishing players for recreational drug use uh, that the focus was more on getting help for them and, and, and rehabilitation. Well, that's the difference with Harvey and the other guys. Harvey actually admitted to distributing it. He, he said he gave it to Tyler Skaggs. So that puts him in a different class than the other four players who came in and said they used. Those guys are subject um, to the policy as well. But, it's a, Jeff, it's exactly like you just said. Um, when it's a drug of abuse – um, in this case, opioids. Um, if it's a first offense, they refer you to what's called the treatment evaluation board, where experts decide a course of treatment for you. It's not made public. Um, in this case, it is because we all can see the trial. But um, as long as you follow that treatment and you don't get popped again, you don't get suspended. If there's a second offense, then they're suspended. But with Harvey, was different. Um, that was distribution. And even though he got immunity from criminal prosecution in order to testify, that doesn't keep Rob Manford from doing anything. So if he somehow is able to land a team, which seems somewhat unlikely, then, yeah, he's going to be fighting a suspension. TJ, how, how I don't know if the word is germane, but look, this is the this is the part of the story that's getting a lot of attention. Matt Harvey admitting you know, to, to cocaine use and, and to supplying Tyler Skaggs. It, it seems as if it's gone away a little bit from Eric Kay and, and Tyler, Tyler Skaggs. And, and I'm just wondering, is, is Matt Harvey's use of, of, of coke, is it, is it germane to the case here? Well, it's, I mean, if you mean the specific case of Eric Kay and Tyler Skaggs, it's really not. Um, it just goes to, as far as the trial, the larger culture that was going on inside the clubhouse, I mean, it's newsworthy outside of it because Matt Harvey was a big name and was, you know, I mean, for those of us who live in the New York area, at his height with the Mets, he was a big deal. I mean, people are talking about him as, you know, uh, the next Tom Seaver or Dwight Gooden. Ended up being more like Dwight Gooden, I think, than anyone hoped would happen. Um, So there's news value to that as well, but... You know, the whole thing speaks to just how much was going on, at least in one major league clubhouse, that the team says it was completely unaware of. And this was fairly brazen activity. I mean, all these Mm. players testified about buying it from Eric Kay in the clubhouse, uh, a lot of times using it in the clubhouse. Eric Kay told the DEA and his lawyers said during the trial that, and Matt Harvey said this as well, that Skaggs would take a pill, go into the bathroom in the clubhouse, crush up the pill on top of the toilet paper dispenser and snort it from there. Um, So baseball has not been looking forward to this. And and once this trial is over, then they've really got to start looking in earnest into just how widespread it was. Uh, Tyler Skaggs' widow, Carly, also testified. Was there anything that struck you in her testimony? 
Well, it was tough. I mean, you know, people in the courtroom, you know, including the jury, had been hearing about her for a week, and especially about the just the awful scene of her trying to call him on the morning of July 1st, 2019, not understanding why she couldn't reach him, um, and it turned out he was dead in his hotel. Um, one interesting thing that came out was on cross-examination, um, Eric Kay's attorney, Michael Malfetta, gently pressed her on the fact that she really didn't know the extent of this drug use and that it really, it's all come out since he died. And she had to say, yeah, there was this part of his life that I really didn't know about. And she said, if I had, I would have done something. Yeah, you'd also heard uh, from an admitted drug dealer named Chris Leonis. Uh, How's he involved in the case? Leonis, yes. Yeah. So Chris Leonis, yeah, was... um, is a friend of Tyler Skaggs from Santa Monica, and he was uh, government had to, you know, had to promise him immunity to, to get on the stand. Um, now, the government's point in putting Chris Lianos up there was to eliminate him as a possible source for the drugs. Um, you know, it seemed kind of counterintuitive. You get a friend of Skaggs up there to say he was a drug user, but I'm not the one who gave it to him. Um, you know, the government's case is that Eric Kay gave Tyler Skaggs the pills that killed him, and only Eric Kay could have. So here comes Chris Lianos to say, yeah, I gave him other drugs in the past. Yes, I brought cocaine and MDMA to his bachelor party in Vegas. Yes, he asked me uh, a week or two before he died for oxycodone, but I didn't give him any. So the, gov- you know, the, the defense team, when they had a, a, a shot at him in cross-examination, Try to make the case that, okay, you said you were in, you can prove you were in Arizona um, in the days before the Angels flew to Texas where Tyler Skaggs died. But they're trying to make the case that he would have had an opportunity to hook up with Skaggs at Long Beach Airport before the team flight took off. They haven't proven that he was there, but they're just trying to poke holes in the government's case to say it's possible that he gave him the drugs and not Eric Kay. TJ, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when clubhouses were full of, of hangers-on, and I can remember clubhouse attendants routinely running off to place bets on the ponies for players, things of that. But it, baseball started to tighten access, I think, back in the 80s after the, after the Pittsburgh drug trials. Uh, but th- this is kind of a nightmare scenario, isn't it? Because this is a club employee um, who I believe was in rehab at one time and who was alleged to have been supplying oxy, I think since, since, since 2017. Did the Angels screw up here, or is this simply you know, just a combination of, of, of unfortunate events and, and just sort of the wrong people being together at the wrong time? I mean, it's tough to say. It's, you know, what it really does, uh, the whole thing has kind of really kind of focused the, you know, the, the fentanyl problem that all of North America is seeing um, in a way that the public hasn't seen before, where, you know, the, the drugs we're talking about are so insidious and so addictive. And here, like you said, a team official, not just a team official, the one who dealt with the media all the time, his job right. is to be around the players and the reporters. And this guy is using at the stadium in the clubhouse, um, you know, it's 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 in part a story about addiction. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we we all remember the '85. Those of us old enough remember the '85 drug trials and 
what embarrassment that was. But then again, you know, in 2003, when federal agents uh, raided the Balco lab in San Francisco, outside San Francisco, and the home of Greg Anderson, all of a sudden there's a new focus on all these personal trainers mm. and guys like that Barry Bonds and other players are bringing into the clubhouse. And once again, they had to crack down on who had access. But at the end of the day, you can, you know, create all the barriers to the clubhouse you want. You may have a team official like Eric Kay who's an addict and uses that proximity to further his habit and to give drugs to other people. But as soon as those guys walk out of there, they're walking into the same world the rest of us are, but they're doing it with a lot more money. TJ, really good of you to do this. Uh, thanks so much. I know it's a tough story. I know it's uh, it's been a long day. Uh, I've been in courtrooms. Thanks so much for doing this, my friend. Stay safe. Be well. Thanks, TJ. Anytime. Thanks, Val. Thank you, guys. Take care. TJ Quinn of uh, ESPN. And uh, again, uh, that case will uh will continue and, and let, let i mean dj's right let's see where it goes <clears throat> let's see where it goes from here because i can i can remember the pittsburgh drug trials and of course the story of the pirate mascot the mm-hmm. parrots supplying or hooking up players and you know tim rain sliding head first into second base because he didn't want to break a vial of coke that he had in his back i mean it was it was a different time uh than it is now but uh that's just a reminder just a reminder man that the you know, the opioid crisis we're dealing with right now is also reaching down to baseball. Yeah, the more I covered this story, I told you before we went on the air, 16 years of baseball, I never saw anything like this. Now, yeah. maybe that was because I spent a lot of time in the minor leagues. These drugs are expensive. Minor leaguers aren't going to spend as much money on that. But as TJ would say, it's a, it's a problem. It needs to be fixed. Mr. Barker, as always, you're the best, man. Thanks so much for doing this. And uh, we will do it again next week. I promise. For Kevin Barker, I'm Jeff Blair. For all of us here at Blair and Barker, have a great night. Talk to you next week.